0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Tech Trends Podcast, where we discuss the latest manufacturing technology research and news. I am Benjamin Mose, the Director of Manufacturing Technology, and I'm here with...
1: Steve Lamarca, Manufacturing Technology Analyst.
0: Steve, how are you doing today?
1: I'm doing awesome. It's a great day.
0: It's a great day. Um, It's cold. It's getting really cold out. (laughs) Which which is your preference, I think, right? If I remember correctly, you do.
1: You know, I love the cold. Yeah. And for some reason, this... uh, I think when I woke up this morning, it was 32 degrees out. Yep. And it was hitting differently. It felt a lot colder than 32. <laughs> but uh...
0: My office is very cold because it's right above the garage. So during the day, my feet are Aww. just turning blue. So, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, one thing I was thinking about is uh, I, r- I ran across a commercial that's my first indicator that it's wintertime. And that's the, okay. I, th- I think it's a Corona commercial where they have uh, wishing everyone a f- happy Feliz Navidad. And they have uh, the wet, uh, Florida Keys uh, shoreline. They have the single palm tree. And that single palm tree gets lit up with the uh, Christmas lights, which is, I think at this point, probably 30 years old. <laughs> they, it's so old. I, I think they remastered it, though, because it looks like it's a full widescreen. But it's uh, such poor resolution that it's fine. It's a night shot. But it's my indicator that winter is officially here when I start seeing that commercial. What are your yeah. uh, indicators that it's uh, officially My here?
1: indicators. I have two. The first one is the more realistic and accurate one. It's when um, obviously it's getting cold out, but like it's when you get towards the end of fall right. because peak leaf changing season is towards the end of fall. Like everybody's like, oh, the fall is the most beautiful. They think it's all everything from like green to brown leaves with red, yellow, and oranges in the middle right. the whole time. And fall is my favorite season, Sure, but the truth is, you get the most variations and deviations in color at the very end of fall. Okay. And then you'll wake up the next day, and it's just dead outside. <laughs> There's nothing on the trees anymore. It's cold. It's dark. Uh, the days are really short. And the best way to describe it is it's very post apocalyptic <laughs> and you're just waiting for the fallout to start raining from the sky just a that's when rain. you know it's winter yeah now i love snow don't get me wrong making it sound all ominous and dark and depressing but i do love snow everything gets uh, i get cheered up once i finally see snowfall but the, the main indicator that is now winter right. is when it's like the 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 world is just like okay, we're ready for the snow now. Or you know,
0: nature's just the, giving up.
1: your area. Yeah, yeah. It's like okay, it's winter. We get it now. We're ready for it. Just snow already. Yeah. Um. But my other, my second indicator, if I want to sound cool, is um, it's when my TPMS light comes on. When uh, when when my car uh, tells me that hey, the air pressure is low in your tires and it's down two to four psi. Yep. If it's down, down two psi you know that's just it's that's just fall it's the the right. end of fall right. but once it's down once it hits four psi below where it should be it's winter
0: it's enough for that light to come, come up on your dashboard
1: yeah that means because <laughs> it's like it's like what 10 degrees per psi correct in your tires if you're filling up with air and not nitrogen yes um your pressure decreases by one for every 10 degrees fahrenheit that it drops so that means if it drops 4 psi it dropped 40 degrees <laughs> that's a fair amount since yeah. when you filled up in the summer so it's it's winter
0: it's definitely winter happy winter it's everyone your
1: winter light. <laughs> happy winter <laughs> Bring I was, the snow already
0: uh, yeah <laughs> all in due time steve uh let's get into some articles man I, I think the first one you want to kick us off is very interesting
1: yeah speaking of uh winter and uh you know snow on the ground um one of the best vehicles available <laughs> is, for 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 driving fast in the snow or in snowy roads or even muddy or gravel roads is the Subaru WRX STI which got its fame and pedigree from rally racing sure. it's got a long history and- of
0: pulling uh, trucks out of snow in the US.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And and police cars. Like <laughs> like what's normal when it's dry out, you know, these people who drive these cars are typically a bunch of flat billed cap wearing you know, vaping hoons that are constantly getting pulled over. But as soon as there's snow on the ground, they're pulling the cops out of ditches. <laughs> but uh, but um anyway, that car has a huge pedigree and heritage in rally racing. Right. And this year Um, a lot of rally events in North America, at least I don't, I haven't been following WRC that much, but I'm sure they've been carrying on. Um, a lot of North American uh rally races and events have been canceled due to the pandemic and whatnot. So, what does a high octane race team that typically competes in North America do? They take part in Jim Cana, which (laughs) Jim Cana is. I don't think anybody really knows what it means, but if you go onto YouTube and type in Jim Kana, mm-hmm. the first one, the first video that was made of Jim Kana was uh, the driver was Ken Block right. in a Subaru rally car, or at least a modified four rally uh, Subaru WRX STI, and driven by Ken Block. And at the very beginning of the video, they define Jim Kana, but it's basically using an open uh, area as your automotive playground,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and in that first video, they used like an abandoned airstrip. And Ken right. Block takes right. this rally car, does a bunch of donuts, drifts it around corners, uh, does some really impressive uh, tricks. If you would, sure. Like you know, Ken Ken Block is to um, driving rally cars as Tony Hawk is to skateboarding. <laughs> you know, t- t- Tony Hawk is not the best like you know downhill longboard racer right but he's really good and if not what is one of the best at doing tricks on a skateboard right and ken block is the same way he's not the best rally car driver but he knows how to huck a four-wheel drive sub- turbocharged subaru into some corners and uh do some impressive stuff with it yeah anyway that first jim connor video came out I want to say close to ten years ago. I think it's nine to ten years ago. Right, uh, that was a decade ago, and that first video gained so much popularity and so much traction that they've been doing at least once a one video a year ever since. And the production quality and the technology going into the cars and the the the, the pedigree of the car drivers has been going up and up over time. Ken Block was the original. And I don't think that the current driver for this latest video was Travis Pastrana. Okay. Um, I don't think he's as good as a rally car driver as Ken Block was, but anyway, sure. I'm, I'm getting off onto a tangent, trying to explain what Jim Conn is. And I still didn't. I apologize. <laughs> anyway, um, watch that video. Just type in Jim Conn G Y M K H A N A 2020. Into uh, and it actually took place in Maryland. They filmed it in Maryland, it was really sick. Travis Pastrano was the driver. And um, but what interests us, what interests the listeners of this podcast now that we're done with the tangerine, I promise, was a video that I actually posted in our weekly tech report of all of the tech that went into the latest car. Yeah, and the latest car is insane, they put a lot into it. It is a full-fledged like WRC style rally car. It's not some modified off the showroom for uh, like production car. It's, right. like, this is a full on race car. Cool. Um, and one of those things that comes with um, full on race cars and, and the highest <laughs> echelon of automotive racing is the highest echelon of manufacturing technology.
0: True. And yeah.
1: one of the things that they showed off in this 20 minute video, which didn't have a whole lot to do with manufacturing, sadly. But there was one blip that you can't help but miss. And you even see it in the Jim Connor video. Okay, uh, This latest Jim Connor video. You do get a close-up of the exhaust pipe. And if you look closely at the exhaust pipe, the surface finish, the texture of that pipe, that's, that's no... Like in Star Wars, when they say, that's no moon and it's the <laughs> Death Star. You look at this exhaust pipe and you say, that's no ordinary pipe. It's uh. a printed... You can tell by the surface finish and texture of the pipe sure. that it's not pipe bar stock. That okay. it was it was printed. Right. And the the second video that I refer to in the weekly tech report, uh, they talk about how they printed a Inconel exhaust system. That's for cool. This car. That's exciting. A titanium Inconel, <laughs> and they even they even printed like the STI logo, mm-hmm. and they made the logo hollow. So. You know, when the car backfires and there's flame from the high octane race fuel burning right. off in the headers and in the turbocharger, um, you can see the flames coming out of the STI <laughs> and it's actually glowing. It looks really cool. That's right. That cool. was one of of that video. Uh, that's one of the coolest manufacturing technologies that they show off. Another video that I did not link to, and I, I suppose I can throw it into the podcast description when we air this, um, is talking about all of the really intense CAD design, computer aided technology uh, and, and programming that went into the design of this car. Okay. In the engineering um, they put this car, they put actually put a 40% scale model that perfect. There's that a perfect replica, physical replica of the race car in a wind tunnel yeah. and got a physical baseline or in real time, they put it in a wind tunnel to get a baseline of how it perform would perform aerodynamically they took that data put it into their simulator and then were able to simulate based off that baseline actual wind tunnel we're able to have a simulation wind tunnel and test all of the things on the car like suspension travel boost at certain speeds dependent on you know the air pressure going into the turbocharger with respect to the air resistance hitting the uh, front and sides of the car depending if it's sliding and if the thing was sliding a whole lot um it, really... and it also had a- active aerodynamics but like this yeah. the the simulation and the programming that went into this was so high level and so <laughs> like so far above you know even even my comprehension sure. uh that it's just like they know their audience, right? Yeah, like, yeah. they know a bunch of gearheads who don't know like what <laughs> CAD stands for. <laughs> That's a really- go inter- into all this stuff to make these videos. They're so high production value now, all because of Ken Block's first video 10 years ago.
0: That's a really interesting approach about the wind tunnel. Because if you look at uh, uh, computational fluid, fluid dynamics, there's a few, say, variables or um, factors that are difficult to actually predict. So when they mm-hmm. do the 40%, I think what they're doing is trying to quantify that from physical testing, take those those specific factors and plug that into their simulations, and then yeah. they can run the other variables that are more realistic than just making up random numbers or using uh, factors yeah. that are out of a textbook, right? So that that's a really interesting right. approach. And, and we're seeing that quite a bit because um, uh, Oak Ridge uh, has their moonshot presentations where they're printing a concrete base a machine mm-hmm. tool base, uh, instead of casting it out of metal. and Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And one of the things they have difficult difficulty uh, predicting is the dampening factor. So what they do is mm. they have their simulation. They come up with their best analysis uh, based on what they know. And when they actually print it, they do tap testing to get their dampening factor. And they plug that back in the simulation. And then they can run further uh, examples in the future. So I really yeah. like that uh, capability.
1: And- and there's no doubt about it. They didn't mention it in any of the videos, probably because they, to some degree they did know their audience sure. and they didn't want to drop the buzzword digital twin. <laughs> there was no doubt about it that it was, I wouldn't say it was a digital twin of the car's performance because sure. you know, what if a digital twin, you have to digitally twin everything and they couldn't possibly do that right. with how much ground this car covered but they simulated as much as they can there was an yeah. attempt at a digital twin right and it was really cool like like if you watch the videos you can see that they they really did attempt to digitally twin everything that would that this car would experience for this video this te- like, <laughs> for the- like maybe 20 minutes tops i forget yeah. I, it yeah. was 10 to 20 minutes and they put in so like not just production value in the video recording but like the all the technology right. that went into this car and to simulate this run that they would do once, because they closed down the like Annapolis, Maryland. Yeah, they yeah. they like this was done all through Annapolis, Maryland in one run. That's a beautiful um, area. Yeah, it is a really beautiful area. And but I guess you can pull that off when uh, you have race team budgets, <laughs> and the season was effectively canceled. Yeah, but yeah. you still have that budget to burn.
0: That's true. Uh, speaking of automotive, I have a our next article about uh, manufacturing and automotive uh this article from modern machine shop and it talks about where's manufacturing technology going for auto uh and spoiler alert they interview my boss steve's boss's boss (laughs) tim shambara about this article so they talk he uh highlights a couple of things uh and i'll boil it down to a couple of key elements right so the drive is to increase consistency from part to part uh the value to the consumer is increased uh, perceived quality right so you know, you're, there's a couple of ways to look at it. One's just a pure fit and finish. If you're able to maintain a consistent part, you can adjust your uh, assembly procedure so everything fits together more consistently. Uh, there's theoretical implications on life of part also. Um, and the way this this is achieved is uh, through analytics. And to get to those analytics to achieve that consistency, it's really about managing de- uh, data. So getting raw data off the machine and Uh, potentially trying to figure out what to do with that is a little bit of a leap. So the, the Tim talks about preparing uh, the data so that you can run analytics off that data quicker, faster, more efficient, efficiently to achieve your uh, part to part consistency. Uh, The second one is um, uh, robotics accuracy yet economical Mm -hmm. um, through vision systems. So, you know, vision systems on robotics have been around for quite a while, but the, uh, ability to scale it up across an entire factory so you can do more interesting things with uh, robots is f- you could say it's cost prohibitive to some degree um, so the idea that the vision systems are becoming more economically friendly so you can increase the deployment across more p- more applications or more systems or do different things uh, if you want to do inspection with those parts so you can do visual inspection to see if parts are assembled or not assembled. Um, if you want to do, um, you know, collaborate. vision
1: systems, like our like robot, I'm sorry to cut you off, but our no, robotic vision systems high enough resolution and accurate enough Mm -hmm. to actually do inspection and like metrology work.
0: Yeah. So it depends on like the light and type of sensor that you're doing. So they have something called structured light uh, metrology. So you're shooting uh, either different types of light at an object and there's, the sensors are modified so you can do different uh, distance measurements to detect uh, basically a measurement. So you can get a, a distance from the sensor to the object. And there are, ways to increase that accuracy um, mm-hmm. and, or uh, the field of view or uh, depends on the reflectivity. There's a lot of factors towards it, but yeah, you could do uh, dimensional yeah. analysis. And that is, that is a kind of a sneak peek that uh, if there's time for it, we'll talk about it uh, at the end. There's a last article I talk about uh, keeping up with additive manufacturing, where we're yeah. going to have to explore different techniques to try and measure these very really unique parts. But back to the uh, initial article. Uh, for Modern Machine Shop. Uh, so being able to scale up robotics across a, a wider factory floor, that's one case. And also they talk about additive. So additive in automotive is growing in popularity, right? So we've got a bunch of uh, uh, machine tool providers that are uh, providing direct to uh, uh, automotive OEMs, uh, 3D printed parts. You, know, you could say some are plastics, most probably are plastics. There's some uh, it could be binder jet. There's a couple of bunch of different variations of that. case. Okay, so and you look at the high end cases where you know you've got like Bugatti or some uh, supercars that are doing brake calipers or critical components. We've talked about um, uh, what's the uh, Caesar Twenty One?
1: Uh, Koenigsegg
0: Koenigsegg's one, but there's an American startup. Oh, uh, oh Zinger. Zinger Zinger. spelled Zinger with a C in front, but <laughs> yeah. Zinger. Uh, you know, he's got uh, a majority of his frame three uh, D printed, or at least the bumper. Uh, so, additive into um, uh, automotive is the next uh, next challenge and next uh, technology breaking into automotive, and there's a lot of challenges there too. So,
1: yeah, well, will also like the, I, I know that the huge challenge, and this comes from a couple of weeks ago, um, I think before Thanksgiving, when I did my the, the week before Thanksgiving, I did a, a weekly tech report that had a article about how additive can be used to mass produce parts for automotive assembly right and as we know additive is a terrible option for mass production <laughs> you want a one off it's right. great right. like additive is like the the dream technology for like english and italian automotive <laughs> engineering sure. as long as you don't want more than one we've got you covered right. but like like you want mass production then not additive um but this one uh i I forget who it was that was experimenting with it but you can mass produce with additive if you nest a bunch of Mm. different parts that would make up an assembly right a bunch of different components that would make up an assembly in a single print it can be done for mass production but you're just doing you know uh um you're, you're, you're nesting yeah, instead of right. making a batch of a bunch of diff a bunch of the same parts at once you're nesting all these different parts that would go into one car at right. one time right it's, and it's really cool i thought it was worth mentioning for this
0: that's a good mention and, and we've been working with oakridge on uh on imts Spark also and lonnie's big thing for additive in uh production is uh dyes molds and dyes if you can print molds and dies, um you know, getting the cooling cavities, getting very unique shapes, you know, even doing short runs. If you need 10 parts while your tool is being fixed or three months of parts while your die is being made, that is a, a huge benefit or a huge value to the industry uh, for additive of uh, printing molds and dies. Yeah. So, uh, Steve, you got an article also on 3D printing from MIT?
1: I have two more at articles, both on additive. Sure. The first one from MIT, um, MIT research. It's from 3D printing industry. And the title is MIT researchers take one step closer to visually perfect 3D printing with variable gloss printer development.
0: That's cool. This was cool.
1: Man, this is going to be tough keeping this podcast episode to 30 minutes because <laughs> we've got a lot of great stuff to talk about. Yeah. Anyway, MIT developed a 3D printing system that uses you know customer off the shelf equipment and uh, um, materials, like the specifically varnishes uh, into their, into additive machines um, to vary the glossiness of the surface finish of printed parts. And um, so there are additive machines that in the process of growing a part, you know, layer by layer, Uh, They will also apply a varnish to the outside of the part to um, create a a surface coating that makes the surface finish uh, smoother and better looking than it actually is, not to slam additive or anything, but (laughs) these machines already exist. Um, But the problem is, you know, you apply this varnish, you get a glossy finish, glossy smooth surface finish. But that's the only type of surface finish you can get. Okay. You don't always want glossy. Sometimes you want matte sure. you know, or a matte finish or a slightly not rougher, but um, um, you, you know the the way light reflects off something, you, know, you may have a specific type of uh, refraction or reflection of light sure. coming from your part. Right. And um, MIT was try- took a stab at trying to figure this out. And um, Ben and I uh, made a joke that (laughs) they probably discovered this accidentally. But uh, (laughs) they pushed the wrong button. So, so with these machines, you know, you can use different varnishes. You could use a matte finish varnish, but that matte finish varnish needs to be paired with a narrower uh, and thinner uh, nozzle to that applies the varnish. And th- this particular matte or these particular matte finish varnishes that have to be paired with these thin nozzles right. get gummed up and clogged quickly. And so much so that you would have to stop growing your part before it's even done, like midway through your operation, your right. run for the one part to clean, declog, and clean the nozzle just to keep going. Yeah. So, and that obviously. Causes an inconsistency, not just from start to finish of the single part, but right in the middle of the production of that part. And this is obviously very uh uh it's non-ideal. Right. Um so MIT has discovered a way to vary the the glossiness of their parts mm-hmm. by um they they apply, they print a part apply the varnish the varnish is glossy in parts of the glossy finish where they want it to be matte they then go over that part w- their that area with what well, could be the whole part but they go over the area that they want to be more matte with um structural support material so okay. they apply they print structural support material to that area and when the part's done and they quench or wash their uh, final the finished part in you know whatever device it is that removes the support material the right. disintegrating uh, support material the support material had affected the varnish in a certain way to make the what would be a glossy varnished finish more matte and right. and seemingly rougher or just just less reflective right, right. and it's it's genius nobody's <laughs> doubting that but I can tell there's you there's no way that it was it wasn't discovered by accident. In fact, there's no way it was actually MIT that discovered this first. Somebody had to have discovered this right. first. It's just MIT has the strong arm of academia <laughs> and the credibility to say, "Yeah, we discovered this." No, you just wrote the paper right. first. But but it's it's really cool regardless. I don't I'm not trying to discredit anybody, uh, it, but it's yeah, a, it's, it's, it's fascinating. It is
0: very fascinating. I like the uh, the uh, ability to enhance the surface finish of the, of the printed part. But also the idea that some engineer just printed, just pressed the print button twice, <laughs> and they got a better surface. They're like, well, look what I did. <laughs> oh, you did yeah. that by mistake. You know you did. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah,
1: totally. It's cool that doing something again actually makes it less smooth. I mean, it's not uncommon, but yeah. it's, it's just, they, they were playing. That's how they yeah. discovered yeah. it, you know.
0: Uh, the article I've got is also about uh, th- this. This episode is heavily 3D, is uh, heavily additive manufacturing. Yeah. But uh, the next one is from uh, 3D Printing Media, and it talks about NASA 3D prints rocket engine parts uh, to survive 23 LAM hot fire test. Now, what the hell is LAM? It's a where did I write that down here? It's a long life additive manufacturing assembly. So they have a specific test uh, testing plan for testing out additive in their rocket engines. And I find this really fascinating for a couple of reasons. One, NASA has a pretty robust uh, plan for testing advanced manufacturing in their uh, space program. Uh, and for this article, specifically, they did a series of hot fire tests um, to demonstrate the structural integrity of these parts. One was a uh, copper alloy uh, mm-hmm. combustion chamber. And the other one was a high strength hydrogen resistant alloy, and this is important for Ooh. a couple of reasons. Um, one, alloy, uh, copper is fairly difficult uh, material to handle welding wise because it transfers heat so well. It's actually very expensive. It, it is surprisingly expensive for some reason, even though every single house is made of copper pipes running water yeah. everywhere. Uh, but it, it's not the easiest to you know actually uh, go through a um, solid liquid solid uh, transfer phase for welding. Um, uh, and they're, they're able to print these parts, uh, and also the also the idea of uh, hydrogen embrittlement. So this is the idea of hydrogen attacking uh, the parent material and weakening the structural integrity of the parent material. Um, I was briefly looking up the article uh, on hydrogen embrittlement, and you know the true mechanics m- I don't think are fully defined yet, uh, but the sim- really? yeah, but the symptoms of hydrogen embrittlement. Oh, so it's also known as uh, hydrogen assisted cracking or Hydrogen mm. and deuce cracking they're all very similar in the end it's hydrogen penetrating into the part and uh, weakening the uh, the uh, the part itself it could create voids or bubbles or that help build pressure and uh, and uh, they call it decohesion or um, re- reducing the the um, uh, structural integrity of the part and that that's fairly important because in rocket fuel hydrogen is a big part of rocket yeah. fuel so you're conveying this thing that could theoretically destroy what's co- what's containing it and uh you know obviously you don't want that so this uh <laughs> this test they did 23 hot fire tests so they actually fired the engine 23 times the total test of all 23 tests lasted 28 seconds uh so it's a fairly quick test but you know it's once it reaches temperature di- at temperature it's going to uh resolidate uh and then they did it over 10 days so They ran these tests, they, you know, doing 23 tests over 10 days sounds like a long time. But once you do visual inspections, once you're gathering all your data, uh, it's a fairly quick turnaround, I think, for this type of test. And it's very, really, really interesting that they're taking the time to do this validation to verify that this material, this process, this capability is survivable in that atmosphere. And it is a really, really rough atmosphere. Um, Yeah.
1: Oh, yeah. I think, i'm think i pretty sure i've mentioned i don't mean to sound like a bro- broken record mm-hmm. pretty sure i've mentioned before that in my undergrad um uh one of my physics professors explained to us when we were we my classmates and i were being uh, instructed on the dangers of radiation poisoning right um our professor uh conveyed to us that that Radiation poisoning is one of the worst deaths you can experience yep. um, right up there with being exposed to space without a spacesuit. And so, yeah, it, when he described what happens to like the human body right. exposed to the vacuum of space, really uh, terrifying stuff I'm sure I've talked about before. But, uh, yeah, space is a little bit harsh. <laughs> but did you mention earlier that so hydrogen embrittlement right. isn't fully defined yet?
0: Uh, The true mechanics of how the hydrogen actually penetrates the material and starts attacking the, uh, starts intergranular attacking uh, the subsurface, that mechanic isn't fully uh, understood yet.
1: So does that also mean that there's not a clear way to prevent hydrogen embrittlement other than to just don't use hydrogen, but that's well, obviously not an option.
0: They know there are certain materials that are resistant to that attack, so they mainly stay okay. with those materials. I mean, I'm sure there's coatings or there's different manufacturing processes to prevent that kind of attack, um, but mm-hmm. since we don't know the true impetus of it, it's kind of hard to get yeah. around that. I mean, it requires uh, you do that test and you expose to hydrogen and it depends on the environment of the hydrogen too. So in this case, it's Uh, it's a hot fire test right or you could have uh, a cold atmosphere or uh, you know depending on what environment it could be radiation uh, induced um, uh, environment so oh
1: man yeah and that would definitely screw everything up because radiation like to the atomic level changes you know the 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 composition of everything around it that's what radiation does best
0: now, I think this article is a fair article to end with, Steve. I got to know more about your 3D printing custom food.
1: Okay. All right. So, Slash Gear came, popped up on Tech Trends. Um, slash Gear, not necessarily a website that does manufacturing <laughs> technology news.
0: Fun um, website, though.
1: But But it popped up in Tech Trends. It is a very fun website. And the article is titled Researchers Create a Gel Ink. create gel ink ingredients for 3D printing custom food. Now (laughs) let's stop right there because in all honesty, I didn't read the article. I don't know what they're talking about other than (laughs) 3D printing food because immediately as soon as I read uh, or got halfway through the first paragraph, I was like, why don't I have 3D printed pizzas yet? (laughs) Why is there not a service? That is delivering me 3D printed pizzas. You know, I don't want Amazon doing it, even though they definitely have the R&D <laughs> funds and, and just the money to do such a thing. Sure. But I definitely want Musk coming out <laughs> at us. You're a Musk like, fan. Hey, I'm going to print. I am a Musk fan. I don't care. <laughs> um, And I want him like everything, every ingredient, every component of a pizza yeah. is... 3d printable <laughs> it, like like the dough can sure. be material extruded yeah. sauce yeah. material extrude you squeeze it out of it you can squeeze tomato paste out of a tube that's material extrusion <laughs> um yes th- cheese cheese, yeah. cheese melts it can be material extruded like you print a pizza uh you bake it just how you want now now you put toppings on it don't get crazy <laughs> like it, you know <laughs> That I don't know if you can additively <laughs> produce, but gonna uh, add, really actually, print some sausage. sausage you Meats could. and sausage. That could totally be material ex- extruded. Sure. Um but anyway. What well, you know, it's just I, I want I want you know the 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 umbrella company uh of <laughs> of uh tesla and spacex to also get into the p- the boring company to get into making pizzas and delivering them by drone for five dollars because you know that- that's something musk would do pizza ingredients are dirt cheap and i realize it wouldn't be a true pizza you know like, <laughs> i have to say that being 50 percent italian sure that you know you don't 3d print a pizza but you can, you can. And we should
0: yeah you know, the trick is if you can get them to serve it in this cafeteria then you realize how good it is. Then you'll spin it off to a separate company. Oh yeah, I'll call them off. But
1: um, <laughs> oh, and another thing that I was thinking, when uh, when when pondering 3D printed pizzas and and this uh, additive food uh, article,
0: mm-hmm.
1: I was thinking, you know what, you know what, food is additively produced, and we didn't realize it. it might not be with CNCs. It might be done manually. Hold on, see. but it's still technically additive. What?
0: It, it is my favorite food, anywhere. It is literally my favorite. Funnel cake. Funnel cake.
1: <laughs> funnel cake is additively it's additively manufactured food. At Disney,
0: I stood in line for twenty minutes for funnel cake. It's
1: material extruded out of a funnel yeah. into a vat <laughs> that polymerizes it. It's not photo polymerization. You take the photo out of there, but that's a hybrid of two different additive technologies. Manually produced, by the way.
0: We'll talk to. Uh, uh... <laughs> ASTM and added to the uh, family of additive processes. <laughs> yeah. Funnel cake. That's a good one. I appreciate well, that, Steve. Funny. Thanks for the uh, the custom food article. So t- tell me about uh, American Precision Museum. I think uh, you know this one. Your favorite trips, uh, road trip. Oh Steve, yeah. Uh, so
1: with road Trippin' with Steve on the IMTS network, starring yours truly. Um, spoiler alert: the very first episode, um, we uh, we visit. The American Precision Museum in uh, Windsor, Vermont. It's Vermont, um, but uh, but Vermont's like my favorite state of the Union. That's I've right. said that before. I've gone on record saying that. And the spoiler to the series is it was my favorite stop. Cool. You know, I apologize, Sandvik, Jarvis. <laughs> I love you guys. I swear to God, I do. But but it was Vermont. Number one, yeah. number two. It's the history of our industry. Right, um, right. Of manufacturing technology, you know, they they cover everything, and they have exhibits displaying like all sorts of machines and tools from before the term machine tool was even a thing. That's cool. Um, and anyway, the American Precision Museum um, it graciously. Put my name on their website i guess uh, i didn't do too <laughs> terrible of a job visiting them and making a fool of myself but uh they uh they're they're running um this holiday season a fundraiser and i implore everybody to either donate and if if, if you don't you know at the very least uh please go to their website learn a little bit more about the museum because it's really an awesome, it's it's Smithsonian grade, Smithsonian level museum. Um, And uh, if if you want to see a little bit more, check out uh, my episode of Road Tripping with Steve where I go to Vermont and visit them. Uh, It was an awesome time and I absolutely recommend you check it out.
0: Awesome. Thanks, Steve. Where can they find more info about us?
1: They can find more info about us at amtnews.org. And if you want to be my best friend, go to amtnews.org/slash subscribe.
0: <laughs> That's the only way to get Steve's heart: to subscribe
1: <laughs> and actually enter your stuff. Don't just go there, but like go there and enter your credentials.
0: <laughs> also, don't forget the uh, the uh, the fundraiser for the uh, American Precision Museum.
1: Yeah, I'll throw that in the. Uh, I'll throw a link to that in the description below.
0: Awesome. Take care, everyone.
1: Bye. Bye.